You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Anarchaeologist Podcast. Today we're getting a bit experimental with archaeology. And of course today I've got the experimental archaeologist, well actually just one of the experimental archaeologists. I have James Dilley of Ancient Craft UK here with me talking about the Three Age Experience. See, I'm just mixing up a little bit because I think we should be a bit more experimental in our podcasting, as we are with our archaeology. But... Let's learn a little bit more about what experimental archaeology actually is. So, James, is it messing around with hallucinogens, or am I getting the wrong experimental? That sounds like the wrong kind, but uh, <laughs> it, the, the actual kind certainly is a lot of fun. Um, but uh, there, there are a few sides, a few different facets to experimental archaeology. It's not a case of uh, archaeologists uh, messing around with molten metal or bashing rocks together. It's a, there's a lot more to it. That's really sad, because I thought that's all the cool bits of experimental archaeology. So, okay, so I'm, I'm interested to learn what is experimental archaeology in your opinion? So, in my opinion... To start out with a bog standard uh, experiment, say you wanted to find out how an object was made, you'd have to set up a series of experiments, perhaps with some different materials, maybe different tools, and then you'd go through those processes of trying to make that object. And through that process, rather than just making it, looking at it at the end and saying, yeah, that was kind of hard, or this is what it looks like now, you're taking slow steps to analyze and record each state of, the, of that manufacturing process. Manufacture isn't just one part. There are several other things um, in experimental archaeology. You might be looking at use, uh, damage on the object of after use, how a site was created. There's a whole range of things. And obviously, I mean, th- th- it's a very, very interesting thing to get into. And as you said, it's got a lot of different um, facets. But how did you first kind of come in contact with it? Was it at uni? Uh, no, it, it was before. Um, I was part of the Young Archaeologist Club. Um, and, you know, I've got a lot of uh, respect them. They gave me an awful lot. They really did focus my interests. Um, and I went on a uh, young archaeologist uh, holiday trip to Cornwall. Um, and uh, at the Trewertha farm, they had three roundhouses, um, as well as visiting the archaeology around the, the site that we stayed at, which was literally on the doorstep. There were cairns, uh, roundhouses all over the place. Um, Though we had a go at a variety of activities that range from bone working, flint napping, metal working. Um, and I was interested beforehand, but that really did spur it on. Uh, and from then on, I, I just wanted to have a go at everything. I still do. I want to learn as many crafts as I can. I love going into a museum or seeing a picture of something and thinking, yeah, that's how you'd make that. Or, yeah, I can see what they were doing there. Or just simply thinking, when I get home, I'm going to have a good, good go at making that. So obviously you're quite uh, hands-on then with what you do. Um, what about? I mean, what about your education? Did that? Did your kind of experiences and your kind of focus on experimental archaeology? How did you tie your education into that? Um, well, through 
uh, sort of secondary school, it, it kind of uh, was on the back burner, just, just a sort of uh, a behind-the-scenes thing that was go- going on uh, at home, but still with sort of the support of uh, the Young Archaeologist uh, Club, and I would sort of go to their events and their uh, monthly meetings. Um, and then after a while, particularly with flint napping, flint napping really is like the backbone of it. That's the, the main thing that I do. Um, around about 10 was when I went on the holiday to Cornwall and it was from then that I really carried on with flint napping. Um, so I've been doing that for what, about 11, 12 years now. Um, so each day or you know, every other day after school, come home, do a little bit uh, around the side, creating more and more waste, uh, which no doubt confused the neighbours and for a while no doubt confused my parents. Um, but uh, eventually I was starting to get a very practical understanding. By the time I got to university, um, you know, for the interview, I always laugh about it. They had mm-hmm. this group of people sitting in for the interview waiting to go in. I went in for my interview um, and some people were coming out a bit uh, ashen-faced, a bit concerned because they were being given these objects and had to critically analyse them. Um, and they ranged from pots to metalwork, all mm. sorts of things. And they gave me a hand axe. It's like, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> what would you like to know about it? So uh, I, I was pretty lucky in that sense. But I was so proud of myself that I was able to walk in and think exactly how this object was made, what it was used for, you name it. That's really cool. Oh, geez, I wish I had the session like that. Uh, it's just like an interview. That would be absolutely amazing. I don't know what they'd hand me. Maybe a microphone. Um, yeah, yeah. Although I, I must say, sometimes I do feel as if I talk far, far too much. Don't know who else tells me that as well, but I've heard it a few times. But uh, that's that's honestly really something quite amazing. So, are hand axes your favorite thing, or what's your favorite thing to make? I mean, obviously, you know, you said, oh, you like making a few different things, but there must be something that you just like. It's almost like you do to relax, like knitting, but more prehistoric. <laughs> It sounds similar. Knitting, napping. Yeah, I guess it's close. Ah, see. Um, yeah. Um, it's funny because I go to events and uh, do napping, you know, for what, whatever, really. And, and people say, that must be really relaxing, really therapeutic. And you ha- have to go through the stages when, when you know, you're working on this object. And, and you have to aim for a, a platform, a space on the piece of flint that can sometimes be a couple of millimeters wide. And you've got to hit it with the kind of pace and strength that you throw a tennis ball um, and have to explain to them that you might have been working on this thing for a couple of hours and focusing all your attention on this piece of flint and then it goes and snaps because you just missed that so it's not very therapeutic but when you get to that end stage and and think yeah I've just made this um, you feel really satisfied and generally the rest of the day goes quite well Um, but I I like making hand axes they're quite satisfying Um, Generally, they take under an hour to make, so it... Well, for an expert like you, they take under an hour, but... They're quite quick to make tools, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the more basic hand axes, you're talking not many flakes to come out to get a usable hand axe. Um, Over Mm -hmm. 100 flakes or so, you're really over-engineering it, Um, and it's beyond a functional tool, and you're just going for something that looks pretty, which is nothing wrong with that. We know that people were doing that. Um, but I like the range of materials. Though I've been working on a beaker at the moment, early Bronze Age pot, um, 
and with clay you get that satisfying feeling of being able to yeah. gently mold the clay into its position or keep an eye on the overall form and it's similar to flint or stone but not quite mm. the same with wood it's slightly different with metal it's slightly different so it's great having that whole range of materials yeah but that's not really experimental archaeology that's experiential archaeology Ooh. is that like phenomenology are you getting into phenomenology no it's a no. great word yeah, it's but... a great word it rolls <laughs> off but yeah um so it's no like i i completely understand what you're saying because obviously you know it's that's barely a fraction of the whole story um I'm, i mean what you said before about um you know testing things checking things i mean when you look at making hand axes like say for example we'll focus on hand axes because i mean you seem to know your stuff about hand axes i mean i'm just fascinated that you can be like yeah well if you have more than 100 flakes then you know it's probably going to be uh like you know um it's going to it's more trying to be look, looking nice i mean that that to me is amazing that you have that working knowledge and but oh, for for me, like, okay, so for example, let's say we had a hand axe that was a little bit intriguing, right? It's a little bit different. I mean, what kind of, how, how can we make experimental archaeology out of this? How can we identify how this hand axe was made? What would you do? Okay, so the first thing I'd do is try to look at the hand axe itself. What material is it made out of? Does that dictate why it's this unusual form? Uh, if it is, well, then I've got to test out this material if I can get it and try and compare it to different materials. Is it affected by the way I strike it, my technique, the types of hammers that I'm using, um, the method that I'm going about trying to take flakes off this material? If it's not the material, um, then maybe it is the technique itself, and I'll need to try a variety of different techniques. So there's, again, loads of different uh, factors um, that are contributing to that. But if it's not so much the manufacture, then I've got to have a look at use. So as an example, if it's an elongated, overly large hand axe, like uh, some of the hand axes from Cuxton, there's a Ficron found there that was just too large to be used. Um, and there's the uh, famous hand axe in uh, the Natural History Museum London, um, which is about the length of uh, an adult out's thigh, which is just ridiculous in size. And some of the African hand axes um, that you find in uh, sort of dry lake beds, they're, they're over a foot long, some of them more, um, and it, they're beyond practical use. So why were they made? Um, but that's found out by making replicas and testing them. They might be uh, turn up as a bit of a surprise and actually be quite useful for something, um, but they might be more of a decorative thing or a show-off object, um, which is some of the theories. Um, some of the recent work that I've been doing is looking at Neolithic axes, um, so close, but um, I've been looking at the different materials, um, particularly the British type. So you've got uh, black flint, um, the mm. flint I use came from Suffolk, um, okay. Langdale Tuff, um, it's a Borrowdale Tuff is the geological name, but it's from Great Langdale. Um, the Hrag Fluid Grano Porphyry Diorite? Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> sounds right. Yeah, it is, it is a long-winded name. Yeah. Um, and a few, uh, there's a Dolorite um, and some Church. So there's about six different materials. Mm -hmm. um, I made these axes out of them um, and looked at uh, any problems that I was facing during 
manufacture. So the flint was fairly easy. Um, I was used to the material, which again is a factor you'd need to consider. I'm used to that material. So that could be a, a determining factor in the overall experiment. So that's something to bear in mind. Um, Chert, um, it was from the West Country. It's fairly similar to flint. I'd had some experience with it, but it was a almost slightly sugarier. Um, doesn't sound like a word, but it was almost grittier. Okay. Um, Whereas some of the other materials, the volcanic materials, were very fine-grained volcanic materials. I yeah. was well, not a material that I was particularly used to. They're quite hard to get hold, particularly Langdale Tough. Um, you generally have to end up walking uh, hundreds of meters up a hill uh, and carrying it all the way down, which is hard work. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, they flaked surprisingly well, um, the fine-grained volcanic materials, the uh, Langdale and the uh, North Welsh crag fluid uh, material and the other material I had was a jersey diorite um, I'm trying to mem remember the final material that I had oh it was um, from the wind sill um, uh, up, up in the north where Hadrian's wall sits on it the great big uh, stone cliff that you see in some of the famous pictures um, and once all these materials have been flaked, I would look at how difficult they were to flake. Some of them were really easy, like the flint and the chert. Some of them took a lot of extra power and energy, um, like the Jersey Dorite and the windsill. Um, and it meant that the material was crushing a lot. But I had to almost agree with myself that a lot of the material would either come off through pecking. And that means when you're mm -hmm. taking a piece of stone, you're striking it several times to take off tiny, tiny chips. It's a very long process, but it's a bit more controlled. Um, and then you go on to the polishing stage. Now, some of these materials would take a lot longer to polish simply because of their chemical makeup. Mm -hmm. Flint is an incredibly hard material on the Mohs scale of hardness. Um, it's not far off diamonds, diamond being 10, and yeah. flint ranging from 7 to 7.5. So it's a seriously tough material. Um, to polish a standard size axe that, say, about 25 centimeters, um, depending on how mm -hmm. finely you want to polish, you're talking at least 50 hours solid work on a sandstone block. Oh, wow. It, it's, yeah, it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But why were people putting so much time into making these axes? Mm -hmm. um, appear very nice a flake tax is nice especially to a flint napper they will happily look at that and think yep good piece of work but most people will be able to look at a beautifully polished axe and think yeah that's a really good piece of work that's really pretty yeah but, well i mean they didn't have the internet did they i mean come on you, you had to do yeah. something apart from watching cat videos you know like you had to replace that with something surely they were just passing the time right well yeah th this is where sort of the experiment went on a bit um, this is what I was trying to find out uh, as well as why these materials were good. And some experiments have been done in the last couple of decades, and they were suggesting that a polished axe lasts much longer than a flaked one, and it's to do with the way the energy travels over the surface of the, the uh, stone. And an axe is a high-energy material. You're using it to strike a relatively hard surface, whether it be a tree or uh, flint mining. Um, so it's got to be quite a hard uh, material that doesn't shatter easily um, and if you're striking this hard surface it's quite a similar process to flint napping you're striking the edge and you're taking off flakes where if you're hitting a tree or uh, a chalk wall it's going to have the same effect and effect, uh, potentially damage the axe 
And the flint napping process encourages energy to travel along these ridges that you'll see on a stone tool. But if you take them away through the polishing process, it's they're no longer across. there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a much smoother transfer of energy into the handle. Oh, wow. So uh, basically, because there's no points of pressure or, you know, there's no, yeah, as you said, there's no kind of ridge for the energy to kind of dissipate into a point. Instead, the whole hand axe kind of takes the brunt of the effort. That is, that is quite cool. And obviously, obviously, though, you know, you think about this quite a lot. You think about your methods and you have the, well, you know, like you have the knowledge of seeing these as ancient artifacts and ancient tools. So, but the thing is, do you think that people in the past thought about the method in the way you do? You know what I mean? Like, is there a possibility of you kind of, I don't know, jumping the gun on some of these uh, things? Because obviously that's always a consideration, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, We do have to be careful sometimes as archaeologists not to overthink things. Um, they might be something that was created by chance, um, or it might be something at the time that was considered style. But we do have to be very careful about overthinking things. Um, and in fact, uh, an undergrad student remi- reminded me the other day, um, and it's something I had uh, thought about before, um, was that when I'm flint napping, I have the advantage of starting with a piece of flint and thinking, I'm going to aim for this or that roughly. Um, but if the f- piece of flint goes wrong or there's a flaw or I make an error that damages the piece of flint, uh, I can change my game plan from perhaps a large hand axe or an axe, or if that breaks in half, maybe a smaller mm. tool or a blade core. Um, that's not necessarily something that people would have had in the past. If you're in the Paleolithic, you wouldn't have been able to change from making a hand axe to making a Neolithic discoidal knife, mm-hmm. uh, which is an advantage that I have. Um, so it's definitely something to bear in mind, um, but I don't think um, their methodology in the way that they were thinking um, would have been quite the same. It would have been very similar, and I've said before that in that exact moment that I'm about to strike that piece of flint, and there have been studies done on it, um, my brain pattern um, must be so similar, almost an exact copy of uh, that of people who are making it thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, you name it. Um, and that I find really interesting. That really is quite a strong connection because the material itself isn't going to change too much. The processes, the tools and the method is going to be fairly similar. Um, and these are going to be people who understand the material in a very similar way. Um, but that's not quite experimental archaeology, but still has such a huge effect um, on experimental archaeology. It's quite interesting because obviously archaeology is, um, you know, it has a constant fight between, you know, um, doing stuff that is methodologically based in the scientific method, but also understanding that, you know, there is a human side to history as well. And I think it's really, really cool that you managed to marry those quite well in the way that you describe how you work. But I mean, um, you know, you were talking about your materials coming from certain areas. Obviously... You know, when we, when humans in the past have affected those things, well, we we can actually, sorry, when people in the past use certain materials, we can trace where those materials came from because yeah. uh, we can look for you know chemical signatures. And actually, coming back to your thing about clay pots, obviously, yeah. 
the materials you use in clay pots have, um, if you use, for example, uh, a thin section, so what you do is you cut through the pot and you slice it up and then look at it under a microscope, there are some microscopic attributes which gives you an idea of how the pot was made. But it's quite interesting that the people in the past may not have realised the extent to which they change the attributes and the physical properties of these items. But yet we now kind of judge them or like, well, make records of them and transform them in from the archaeological record into our own records through this kind of analysis. But is that really the correct analysis if these objects weren't viewed like that in the past? I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're we're approaching it from a very different uh, perspective. I mean, people in the past were making these to use, um, and say, you know, going back to the hand axe, sort of harking on about it, um, people be making this object to quickly produce um, as easily and efficiently as they can without using too many precious calories, and then going off and using it. They may throw it away straight away. Um, but if material uh, is a bit of a luxury in the area, you might curate it for some times and they might reflake it. Um, and we see that, particularly in some Neanderthal hand axes where they've reflaked it and reflaked it. You get these very steep edges where they've clearly carried this thing for quite a distance and reused it many times. Um, whereas when I'm making it, I'm not so much thinking about how quickly I'm going to make this hand axe and then use it um, with half a mind of this carcass that I've got in front of me and potential predators in the area, um, I just want to make this hand axe either for my own interest or perhaps for a study. So it, I will be taking it from a different approach. Do you ever have a carcass in front of you? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 all part of the fun. Uh, some experiments I was doing recently was looking at how different types of hand axes um, have a different effect on animal um, carcasses, right? Animal yeah, yeah, yeah. carcasses, not yeah. uh, the carcasses of your enemies. No, 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 no. That, that's not so much. That's more, that's more Bronze Age, Iron Age oh. when weaponry appeared. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they had weapons in the Stone Age, whatever that means. But yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's actually an interesting point as well. But uh, so, so you're you're just like slicing up dead animal bodies with hand axes and calling it science, then. Yeah, I mean, I, initially it does it does sound a bit you know, gruesome. That sounds a bit mad. We've got got a nutter here cu cutting up uh, this deer carcass with, with rocks. Are you denying uh, you're a nutter? Really? Oh, oh we're, we're all nutters. You have to be a nutter to do this. <laughs> That's very w true. Whether you choose to accept it or not is another thing. <laughs> so, but uh, so it, it's interesting because yeah. you look at this carcass and you know you'll butcher it up. Um, and if you've done this several times, um, you know, it, it'll be fairly easy. And in fact, uh, Redin did a uh, study, um, and this was a really good case study for experimental archaeology, where they gave uh, some local butchers a set of hand axes, um, and they said, you know, look, just have a go with them, see what you think. Um, and it, it was a bit more to it than that. Um, mm. But the butchers, at the end of the study, asked if they could keep them because they were so pleased with them <laughs> in, in terms of how good they, they were. And I, I've, not, not so much in a competition, um, been with someone who's had a steel filleting knife and I've had a hand axe that I've just made. And there's just been no difference, um, really. The, one has a razor-sharp edge, so does the other one. But one's made of steel, one's made of flint. There's no real difference. One one edge is uh, 
very consistently sharp, but one slightly serrated, but they still have the same effect. On bones, however, it's yeah. a very different story. And th this is the bit that archaeologists are interested in. Mm -hmm. When you start to find consistent patterns of cut marks on bones, you might get a single straight edge, you might get a cluster of cutting marks, but what does that mean? Well, we don't really know. That might be where someone's take, taken a single blade and they've made several cuts because it's been a particularly tricky joint. Or it might be where they've scraped a hand axe across that bit of bone because it's got that serrated edge, it, mm -hmm. uh, edge on it. It's left uh, a series of marks rather than just the one. And, and it's that that uh, someone who might be working on a carcass with stone tools might be trying to find out. Wow. That is actually really, really quite interesting. comes back to the kind of microscopic attributes of these, uh, like microscopic evidence of uh, the kind of activities that these people do. I'm quite interested, actually. Um, what do you think is the... Sh I've heard, I've heard obsidian. Obsidian as a cutting edge is the sharpest thing you can have. I don't know. What, what Do you know about obsidian? Yeah, so I've just ordered some obsidian from the States and I'll have it by the weekend and I can't wait to get my hammers to it because I'll be able to make some lovely obsidian blades. Can you send a few up here? <laughs> yeah. You can't send you them in the to... mail, can you? Uh, you can do. You can um, send... They're just quite heavy because it's rock. Yeah, no, no, but you can you can send sharpened stone knives in the mail. Uh you'll probably want to blunt them because otherwise they'll tear through the packaging. So that's, the, that's all I'd recommend. Um, but obsidian's a fantastic material and it flints glassy. Um, imagine materials that's much, much glassier. Um, it takes far less effort to flake. From a sharp edge perspective, flint, a really, really sharp piece of glassy flint might have a perfect sharp edge thickness of three to four molecules thick. Mm -hmm. Uh, surgical steel, that might have an edge of about two, maybe two and a half, perhaps three molecules thick. Okay. Obsidian okay. is one molecule thick at the blade. <laughs> well, that's quite it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Mad. I mean, that that also, uh, well, it does, it does, it does interest me slightly coming from a very chemical background. Um, and especially because, you know, obsidian is you know one of these like materials that does get talked about a lot but to be absolutely fair you know people forget that it is well as you say it's a glassy material i mean it's 80 percent silicon dioxide which is glass like sand you know it's only got it's got a stark yes. color from you know magnesium oxides and iron oxides that are mixed in as well it's absolutely fantastic and um i i, I I'm, I've been told that it's quite an ancient material as well. I mean, like, obviously it's got certain pockets around the world, but, um, like, well, why do you have to, uh, why do you have to get from America? Is there nothing over here? No, not in this country, no. Um, the nearest source is probably Turkey, central Turkey. Oh, okay. Um, it, we, um, there might be some that's very deep, but in terms of uh, open exposures that are easily accessible, I'd say the uh, closest source is probably Turkey. Um, in, in the States, they have a fair amount of it. They, they get a variety of cherts and jasper as well. Um, and in South America, a lot of the Aztec and Inca blades were definitely made of obsidian. Mm -hmm. um, but it's unfortunate we don't have some closer. Um, it'd be nice to have uh, quite a good variety. But e saying that, we do... in, in 
in Britain, we're very into variety of materials that you can nap easily. Mm. Uh, it's also interesting because obsidian has um, there's a technique of dating. I don't know if you ever heard of obsidian hydration dating. It's quite an yeah, interesting uh, geochemical method, um, which I, I think it's also it's it's kind of sad we don't have that much out here. But if we did find it in the UK, would that suggest uh, trading migration? Do you think? Well, it would obviously would. Yeah, it? definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we know that um, British uh, tin and copper was traveling a great distance. Um, it, towards sort of the early Middle Bronze Age, uh, the British Isles were rather economically wealthy. Um, and that, that's quite a loaded uh, phrase. So obviously, um, if we find obsidian in the UK, it would mean that we have trade or migration, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We... we we know that there was a great deal of trade and migration um, in the UK, especially in prehistory. Um, and it's something that people don't really appreciate uh, too much. But on the other end of the scale, people overemphasize it uh, as well at times. And this is something, again, we can't overthink these things too much. Uh, one of the great, uh, not really debates, but ideas and theories was the, uh, the British axe trade especially with sort of the Langdale Tuff, these blocks of uh, Langdale, all the finished axes were being sent uh, all around the UK. Um, and there were the suggestions of these producers and middlemen and then final manufacturers and dis distributors. We don't have any evidence of that. Um, we only get these axes um, that are away from source uh, in a scarcer and scarcer concentration that just suggests they were being taken from source, and, but that's about it, really. Uh, in terms of metal, um, during sort of the early Middle Bronze Age, uh, uh, as an island, we were quite a wealthy area. We had uh, a lot of Cornish tin. Um, there was a lot of Irish gold um, that was being used, especially in Ireland and in this country. Um, we get pockets of copper, all around the UK. So we were able to produce our own uh, metal. Um, and towards the later Bronze Age, we could produce our own uh, lead-based bronze, um, something the Romans were very aware of, uh, not, not so much from uh, looking back at the Bronze Age, but um, they could see by prospecting the area that, that we had quite good lead res uh, resources here. We also had a lot of woodland to produce all the fuel we needed to then work the metal. And we've, of course, got coal as well, something that's to bear in mind later in uh, our own history. So uh, as an island from a stone, metal, other resources point of view through the past, we we've been very lucky. Um, and these resources have been traded sort of throughout the area. Um, so from a chemical point of view, uh, for metal, uh, ceramics uh, and stone, uh, you've got a lot of opportunity to trace these materials like a network all over the UK. Would you consider yourself an archaeologist or an experimental archaeologist? I would, Where do you think you sit? I would consider myself an experimental archaeologist. And does that have any meaning when you're talking to other archaeologists? Like, How, how do you feel archaeology in the UK is at the moment? Oh, that, that's... That's a, that's a tricky one. Um, oh, I know. I know. Yeah. That's why I'm asking it. <laughs> I don't give you softball questions. No. I, I've been playing I've been playing it quite nice at the moment. Yeah. But as always on this show, we try and go a little bit further. We try and, you know, poke the bear a bit. So I'm poking the bear. Tell me, what do you think? Well, I'm 
pleased at the moment with um, how British archaeology is going. We're, we're definitely going for a lot of outreach at the moment, and particularly with the um, curriculum change in primary schools to include prehistory, um, that's definitely in the favour of archaeology. It means that teachers um, and schools and uh, the pupils themselves are going out there to find out um, about their own history. So from a next generation point of view, um, it's really good. I would have loved to have learned about prehistory in primary school. Um, so from a future point of view, great. Um, and from field archaeologists that I've spoken to recently, they've, in their opinion, they've said it's on the up. Um, take that as you will. Um, so I'm you know, feeling positive for them. From an experimental archaeology point of view, um, there's still a lot of interest in it. And I, I think that sometimes people view it as a really cool, fun thing to do, which it is. Um, but there's definitely a lot more science investigation behind it. Otherwise, you're talking more about experiential archaeology, which is still good. And you're still getting a lot out of it. Um, but it's, it's not quite the same thing. All right, we're here with Jordan Harbinger from theartofcharm.com again, and we're talking about the Art of Charm podcasts. And over the last month, we've had some people write in and comment about the Art of Charm, and they want to know a little more about it. So, Jordan, can you tell us a little more about what they can find on your podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. I know that the term sort of like networking and relationship development is all vague and everything. So, basically, we focus on a lot of things, very broad topics. Our toolkits are focused on things like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, business networking, negotiation, relationship management, et cetera. But we also branch into other topics like I had a guy on the show named Brad Salas, a guest, and he talked about millennials and how they can relate to their bosses better, uh, their boomer bosses, and how boomer bosses can relate to the new millennials better. Because as you can see in workplaces, those are guys are butting heads and it's kids are so dumb these days and it's old people don't get it. And it's just like, if we can bridge that gap, we can be more productive. So we gave a lot of practical exercises and steps to use that. We've also talked about how to burn fat while you're working with weird things like treadmill desks and being cold while you're working in the office to burn calories while you're just sort of being you working all day. And we, we cover hundreds of other things, but those are two kind of concrete examples of it. Hey, and these are real world things you can use. I've actually turned the temperature down in my home office because of that podcast uh, about just being cold because it's something you can do that's easy. Yeah, and there's plenty of guys out there listening to the show who bought these weird ice vests and they're sitting there freezing right now, but, you know, losing weight doing it. So we're weirdos, but we assume we're in good company. That's right. Well, you can check out more from The Art of Charm at theartofcharm.com and you can check out the podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and everywhere you download podcasts. Thank you. Yeah, that's quite interesting, actually, that there is this big distinction because, you know, as you've actually been on uh, TV shows before, you know, there are, in certain ways, in certain forms of media, there are certain, like, ways that things are presented. I mean, archaeology is presented in a certain way, and I've railed against it so many times. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously, it's, it happens the same with uh, experimental archaeology. I mean, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experiences of media? I mean, you've had quite a few TV gigs can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah. Obviously, uh, you were on uh, episode 12 of the Anarchaeologist podcast, and you were telling us about Time Team, but you were on a few other shows. Yeah. So tell, them, uh, tell us about them. So uh, what, one of my favourite ones that I did uh, a number of years ago now was for National Geographic Stone Age Atlantis. 
um, mm-hmm. which, which is quite a good show. Um, and it had a lot of scenes um, that had been set up like a Mesolithic camp. And they, they had a variety of people um, that were wearing authentic clothes, doing authentic activities, um, which was really good. And, and to be in that situation where you're doing um, these activities in, in what felt like authentic surrounded with a camera lens right behind your ear, it, it felt... You know, it, it was quite fulfilling, quite interesting, and you're getting quite an experience out of it. Um, but in terms of what you're gaining from it, it's definitely an, something for the audience of the show. Uh, it was fun to do, but from a learning point of view for yourself or from an academic point of view, you're not really getting too much out of it. But it's definitely there to encourage others. Um, it's quite difficult to, um, I think, put any kind of le- level of experimental archaeology across through media without cutting out an awful lot of it. Um, you've either, either got to cut out the, the data analysis or the results at the end. Generally, people will go for the fun and exciting bit, whether that be flint napping, cutting down the tree, firing a pot, pouring metal. It, you mm-hmm. definitely get the OOR factor. It looks really cool, um, and people will be really interested in it, which is definitely what the... TV is after. That's great. They've got what they wanted. Um, and like Time Team, uh, hopefully those interested people who are watching might follow it up further and at that point start to uh, get to the point that they realize or are doing it themselves, um, creating these in-depth studies where they're hoping to get an awful lot out of it. Um, but experimental archaeology on TV, I think it would be very difficult to get the whole process um, but it's definitely a very visually appeasing thing. Um, you generally get a lot of people um, interested in it. it. It's it's not something you can easily um, play down too much. It's not worth it, really. Um, it, it's a, a useful tool for archaeology to say, you know, we, we don't just focus on field archaeology or post-excavation. We use a variety of other... Uh, tools and investigation techniques a lot that you might not know so much about no that's actually really interesting because obviously a lot of people do get excited with uh, media and i mean like uh, i'm i'm really excited about archaeology and media and very much interests me but you're completely right you know tv is a different animal and sometimes we have to realize that not everybody wants to know the specific you know chemical breakdown of uh ceramics that come from made from clay from this part of the uk but you know those people are weird okay those are the interesting things god damn it i will make you like this thing i actually i want to come back to uh what you were saying about um uh the young archaeologist club obviously that's been a really big part of your life but um you know and i mean what do you think about encouraging young people within archaeology i mean we do see a lot for definitely uh young people but uh what do you think do you think there could be more done i mean obviously tying in with the new curriculum uh but i mean what else do you think we can do with the um, more uh, like introducing people to the idea of archaeology more um, well, the, the Young Archaeologists Club is definitely a really good stepping stone. They've got loads of archaeologists working within it um, who, when they start to get uh, some of these young archaeologists progressing through the ranks, uh, they can start to um, either give them guidance or focus towards uh, whatever interest they have within archaeology. Um, it's just getting 
these young interested people uh, towards uh, somewhere like the Young Archaeologists Club or or uh, a local history club, or even people uh, locally, um, local archaeologists who might be based within a town or for a certain museums um, that can be out there to help support young people. Um, and that definitely is an, an important thing, Try, trying to um, be these uh, go-to establishments or people to say, um, you know, my, my interest isn't quite the same as yours, but I can point you to this person or these people or this group. Um, and the curriculum change to include prehistory in school is quite new. Um, it's definitely in the early days. Um, and I'm hoping um, that if it continues and it stays in the curriculum, which I hope it does, um, that schools um, that are particularly interested in inspiring their pupils onto uh, further things outside school um, will think about these clubs and groups um, that are around them um, that they can direct these pupils to. Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, so what do you do as Mr. Ancient Craft UK? Um, obviously, you do stuff not only to do with the media, but you also have a few other things available. So what? Uh, who, who do you usually provide services for? Now, that really sounds sketchy, doesn't it? Um, archaeological services, what do you do? Um, so often I'll, I'll be found in a museum somewhere around the UK, um, either giving demonstrations of uh, tool technology or how tools are made, um, I have been visiting schools as well to go in for a prehistory day where uh, I'll take my uh, portable Mesolithic hut in um, and give them a few demonstrations um, and show them some replica artifacts and they get to have a go at grain grinding um, and they get to see fire lighting and uh, have a go at spear throwing as well, which usually gets them quite, quite excited uh, to see a... a uh, a wicker deer in the school field and, and then see me running across with spears um, only to be told at break time, yeah, kids, you're going to be having a go at that after lunch. They, they usually, uh, usually uh, get, get some interest. Um, it's quite funny when all the kids have had a go and then you hand uh, the spear throw to the teacher and say, yeah, go on then, show them how it's done. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoy going in, into schools because you usually will get one or two very interested or knowledgeable kids um, and you can just tell that uh, that they've either gone away before the day and uh, they've looked into this themselves, or it it's similar interest to what the sort of interest that I might have had when I was their age. So it's really good um, to see young people um, who are interested, not necessarily archaeology, um, geography, geology as well, or, or other subjects. It's great to see that uh, there are some very keen. Uh, interested young people out there and you only try to do what you can to sort of push them in the right direction um, because that that's what I had and that's why I'm here doing this now because there were lots of people out there um, who went out their way to help direct me and inspire me um, and I think it's definitely something that archaeologists uh, and museums and archaeological groups should do really go out their way and to help encourage and inspire young people, because that make, that really does make the difference. Um, if young people go and find um, either a person or a group, and they find they're not particularly helpful, um, or or they're 
you know, not as friendly or as open as they should be, um, they're going to get a, a very early opinion that uh, archaeology isn't quite as uh, public friendly as it should be. And that's really not the case. We're really out there to provide uh, this interest and evidence and information that we can put in museums and on, on TV and radio and you name it, that are there for the public. Um, they're, they're for us as well to learn more about and for us to study, but they're there for the public as well. It's for their interest. And that's a huge part of archaeology that must be remembered. It, a huge part of it is for the public. Um, and being very aware of them and their interests is vitally important. You know, it's funny you were talking about the spear throwing there. Uh, I suck at spear throwing. Um, I don't know if you've ever used an atlatl. Yeah, the, the, the very same. Ah, oh, I, I can't. How do you do it? Honestly, like, I keep throwing them into the ground in front of me. Like, seriously. They they literally just, like, I throw it too... It just, it just plops in front of me. I, how? How? Uh, you, you know, you're going to have to demonstrate it to me sometime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um... It, it's, I've found, um, again, going into schools, kids that play tennis a lot are very good at it. Um, it's because of their uh, serving technique that they're able to keep their arm very straight and they've got a lot of power in a downward stroke. Um, and it's fairly similar to throwing a tennis ball. You've got that forward drive, um, but you've got a bit of a flick of the forearm that encourages that forward momentum. Um, the best kind of... Uh, so you're telling me Andy Murray would be great yeah, during I'm, the Iron Yeah, I'm sure Ridge. he would. Yeah, I'm sure he would. <laughs> um, the best kind of uh, description that I could perhaps give yourself and uh, the people who are listening um, is if you can imagine there's a tennis ball attached to your en the end of your elbow. Uh, and if you're listening, you can try this now. This is sort of a, an on-air uh, experiment. So okay, ready? Yeah. <laughs> the tennis ball is attached to the end of your elbow. Um, it's not in your hand. You don't have that forearm. Now try and throw it. It's not very easy, is it? You don't have much accuracy, no real power or direction. No. Now imagine throwing that tennis ball from your hand as you've always been used to. It's much easier. You have yeah. all that extra power and accuracy that you're used to. You've always had that. But imagine adding a third limb to the end. You've got all that extra power and actually you're quadrupling your potential, possibly more. And it's just amazing when people think about that and then have a go and they either throw the spear by hand and then have a go with the atlatl and think, turn around and say, yeah, that was easy. The world record um, for spear throwing um, is just, a, just under a kilometre for distance. To throw a spear just under a kilometer. What? Are you serious? Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? So how far can you throw? Um, not to place you anywhere, but you know. <laughs> I've been asked, asked this before, and I think I'm going to have to go out there and measure uh, how far I can throw these spears because I I've done it for demonstrations. It's like, how far can you throw? Oh, I don't know. I generally go for accuracy. You know, I'll, I'll take the wicker deer with me. And it's a case, you know, if you can hit the deer, um, then you'll win a prize. But And then they'll go and ask me. Um, and on that very lucky occasion, I'll turn around and throw the spear and hit the deer square in the neck and it will fall over. And you turn around and say, yeah, I'll do that every time. And thinking, <laughs> that was a lucky shot. Um, <laughs> oh, so, no. Now, now you've given away the secret, you know? 
<laughs> oh, oh, only kidding, of course. I do. I managed to say everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but the, the people who would have been using these would have been seriously good hunters. But the, this is part of experiential archaeology. Um, for yeah. further study, perhaps uh, in my PhD, I'll be, I'd love to look at Upper Paleolithic Spear mm -hmm. development. So looking at the earliest origination, bone points, all the way through to the appearance of microliths. Um, but I'll look at how the points were made, how the spears were used, and I'll hopefully have a go at using some of them to look at the penetration potential of some of these different stone or bone points. Um, so I'll get to use an atlatl then, so I'll be taking that fun side of it, um, and I'll be applying it to uh, an academic study, an experiment, where I'll hopefully get lots of useful data out of it, um, as well as you know, the, the fun of it, but there's also a lot of fun... Uh, that can be taken out of it um, to produce these great results. Hopefully, it might uh, land on a null hypothesis, but hopefully not. Oh. Well, no, hopefully not. So what sort of techniques, finally wrapping up, what sort of techniques do you use to, uh, would you use to test these spears? I mean, would you put them in a wind tunnel, do you think? That would be really cool. It would be cool, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder if Jaguar would uh, lend theirs. Perhaps not. <laughs> um, but, uh, Only but... if they can make an ad out of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, what? you know what? You're sitting on a million-dollar idea there. Yeah, maybe, actually. I'm just writing that down in my note. But, yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Consulting archaeologist here. You yeah. know, I'm uh, your ideas man, okay? I'll, I'll put the side note. Yeah, an archaeologist podcast. Oh, oh I'll just scribble it out. Oh, oh well. Um, <laughs> I've got a record. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh God, I forgot. Um, so... I want to look at the very start to the end. So I want to make these stone points or bone points, and I'll look at the toolkit that will uh, be used to make them. I will then go into producing the spear itself, so attaching the stone point using the authentic glues, the wood, and the flights. Um, I'll then look at examples of atlatls um, or woomerangs, as they're known uh, in Australia. Um, Woomerangs. Woomerang, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was um, the worst Australian accent I've ever heard. <laughs> so, something else I need to practice, uh, pottery, flint napping, Australian accent. I'll note that down. Oh, that's the trinity. Sorry, yeah. go on. <laughs> um, so, and after that point that I've been testing them, um, I'll look at the maintenance. If some of these spears are really difficult to maintain or they take a lot of extra time to uh, replace broken points... Um, why were people doing it? Perhaps they had a really good penetration potential. Um, perhaps they gave slightly better accuracy or distance. That these different technologies that appeared from the very start of the Upper Paleolithic through to the early Mesolithic, they were all slightly different, but they must have had all their different pros and cons, and it's those I'm hoping to highlight. I mean, that's really, really cool, and I really wish you all the best with it, and uh, you'll actually, you'll have to come back and tell us more about your experiments and your archaeology in that regard. That's really, really cool. So uh, what, are you, what are you doing for the rest of the day? You uh, making some more pottery? I've still got this beaker to finish. Um, yeah. it, it's sort of a, a preform at the moment, but there's a few asymmetrical sides. I've still got to finish it and put the decoration on it and then got to leave it to dry for a couple of weeks and then stick it in a fire and see if it explodes. Hopefully I'm, not. I'm, ju I'm just wondering, you know that, ghost, that scene from Ghost? 
I mean, yeah. is that is that like the prehistoric man behind you as you potter around on this wheel, you know, gently forming the oh, wonderful not. shape? <laughs> Perhaps more off-putting than anything else, but uh, <laughs> your listeners, um, if you're interested in pottery and prehistoric pottery, look up Graham Taylor. He is the man. It was him that um, brought me... Um, my attention to pottery. As I said, I'm a flint napper, but um, myself and uh, Graham and some others made the replicas at Stonehenge. And I've said before to him, I'd love to learn a bit more about pottery. It's not something that I really feel comfortable with. But after a few uh, lessons um, and chatting to him a few times, I've started to get the bug. So uh, for prehistoric pottery, look up Graham Taylor. We definitely will. And we'll have all those links and relevant information in the show notes i think that wraps up our show on experimental slash um experiential archaeology i think i think we we actually got to a point where we were talking about both at one point so that's really really cool and um i hope that anybody listening heads over to ancient crafts uk for some more information or is inspired to go and do some flint napping some pottery making of their own Thank you again, James, and uh, I wish you all the best. Do you have anything left to say for our listeners? The be- best place I'll say, if you're, if you're on Twitter, um, is have a look for uh, either myself or Graham. There are a few others out there um, if you're interested in other crafts. Um, they're usually posting up pictures um, or pieces of archaeology that have just been discovered. Um, or they'll be uh, advertising their, their own courses and workshops uh, for people who are just getting into archaeology or for archaeologists who want to pick up some of these crafts um, or experiences. You know, I, I do flint napping workshops and um, where you can come and have a go at making uh, a hand axe or a, uh, a Neolithic knife. So if that's something you're interested, have a look. But uh, if you're interested in another craft, go away. No, go, go, <laughs> go, go and explore uh, what pe- people in experimental archaeology have to offer. That sounds actually really, really cool. And if I was only a bit more south, I'd sign up straight away. Anyway, thank you once again for being on the show. And if you're listening and you are saying to yourself, oh, no, there goes another hour of my time. I want something more. Remember, you can check out any of the other shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network, including Archie Fantasies, which is all about debunking pseudo-archaeology and you've also got, of course, the struggling archaeologist, the struggling archaeologist guide to getting dirty. One show we can all say we've been there. Anyway, until next time, that's been myself, Tristan from the Anarchaeologist, and goodbye, Mr. James Dilly. See I'll you see later. See you next time. Bye. Hey, hey, James. Hey. Why was the archaeologist thrown off site? Oh, go on. He was caught napping on the job. Oh god. <laughs> I've got people around me Fantastic. grimacing. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.